0: I'm Rob Trzitzky. This is Salon of the Refused, where we talk about ideas that are outside the mainstream. My guest today is Bob Garmong. He's a former lecturer uh, at Dongbei University of Finance and Economics in China. Uh, But before he went to China, he uh, got a Ph.D. in philosophy and is something of an expert on John Stuart Mill, which is the reason I have him on here. Thanks for coming on, Bob.
1: Great to be here. Thank you. Um, Yeah, this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. Although I'm now um, uh, out of academia and working as an immigration and um, education consultant here in China, John Stuart Mill is still my uh, still very close to my heart. Not necessarily in a good way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's so.
0: That's what I want to go into, and this is the reason why I'm having you on for this part of the conversation. We're going to Talk about China some other time, but uh, you know, one of my pet pieces you know, for a very long time, is the idea of conservatives accepting that the the alternative to them, that the left is the liberals, quote unquote liberals, and it raises a big question, which is, you know, liberalism originally meant pro freedom. That's the etymology of the word. Uh, there are still places in the world, in Australia, where the Liberal Party is the more pro free market party. Uh, But there's this thing that's happened in the in in America, especially where liberal has come to mean the left, which in many ways is is the most illiberal uh, side of the conversation. Uh, So the question I have is, how is it that liberalism came to mean a philosophy that's anti-freedom? And from some of the things you've written uh, recently and, and, and in the past and from looking at it myself, I've come to realize that John Stuart Mill is really crucial to that process.
1: Mm. Yeah, and, and the left today is increasingly illiberal in the real meaning of that word, right? And, and you've written a great piece on that, and, um, and I generally agree with your take on John Stuart Mill. Uh, I have a, an article coming out shortly um, in an upcoming book on, um, on Ayn Rand's political theory called The Arc of Liberalism which traces the path from John Stuart, uh, from John Locke through John Stuart Mill and to Ayn Rand, in which I argued that uh, really John Stuart Mill is basically public enemy number one for true liberty. Although he wrote a book famously called On Liberty, uh, I, I argued that he had much to do with that conversion of so-called liberalism to what we regard as the liberals today.
0: Well, one one so, detail that that I don't know if you're you're probably familiar with this, but I discovered it recently. It was found it kind of delightful that the the left remnant of the Liberal Party in Britain is the Lib Dems, the Liberal Democrats. And mm-hmm. as a symbol of party leadership, the new leader of the Liberal Democrats is given an old, you know, 150 year old copy of John Stuart Mill's On Liberty. That's how important it was for the history of liberalism.
1: Right, and yet my whole point and and the point of this uh, forthcoming paper of mine is that in fact it's a terrible, terrible misunderstanding. Although On Liberty has some wonderful rhetoric and it sounds really beautiful in in its defense of liberty and particularly he's focused on what he regards as freedom of speech or intellectual freedom. In fact, I think he Radically undermines that very freedom. Well, I, so I find it we interesting
0: go- that, that from my understanding, Mill, he was very strong on freedom of speech and also on sort of lifestyle freedom, uh, freedom to engage in, you know, we would think of sex, drugs, and rock and roll in the modern context. I'm sure
1: what he called experiments of liber of living. Yes, right. right.
0: Experiments of living, and that's a very right. recognizable modern liberal kind of conception, right?
1: Which, for an incredibly buttoned-down guy with pointy hair, and absolutely no peccadilloes that anyone can identify, uh, is is quite extraordinary. I mean, he he really lived the opposite of that sex, drugs, and rock and roll philosophy.
0: Well, I think I think maybe he was still trying to get back at Daddy for his education. Uh, he was famously uh, yes. driven like a yeah, slave, like a slave as a child by his father, James Mill.
1: Yeah, and we're getting way into the weeds here, <laughs> but John Stuart Mill was. Um, uh, well, let's actually let's back up first and talk a little bit about the tradition from which John Stuart right, Mill and developed. I place him
0: in his historical context a little.
1: Right, right, right. Uh, so John Locke, who uh, was in his prime in the late 1600s, was uh, the, really the the main definer of liberalism and of liberty and he wrote uh, two treatises of government and uh, Letters considered toleration which were really Seminal to the founding of America uh, And I'm pointing here as if I were in America <laughs> in <spirit. laughs> But uh, <laughs> in spirit definitely uh, and, and he was he defined liberty as freedom from force, and he was very, very clear on that point, and he argued particularly, and I, I claim that his main argument for freedom is not in the two treatises, which is what everybody takes as his definition of the proper government, and, and it is, but his core defense comes in, uh, I, I think, in the letters concerning toleration, in which he argues that Uh, Force cannot persuade a mind. And he's talking specifically in those letters about religious liberty, but the the same arguments then get kind of uh, assumed in his two treatises of government, but the arguments are presented in the letters concerning toleration. So in both works, he argues that uh, the, the point of government is to protect individuals from force or what he calls indemnification in property, which is just a fancy word for uh, force or fraud, basically. Uh, and he argued for both economic liberty in the form of property rights and intellectual freedom. Uh, he was focused on religious liberty, but the same arguments apply to all intellectual freedom. So, had presented this argument that then just got accepted and, and really swept, particularly in the American world, but also eventually in the British world, became the the, the defining philosophy of what what became known as liberalism. Mm-hmm. Now, John Stuart Mill came around in 1904, uh, yeah, that was when he was born anyway, mm-hmm. and he came around. Uh, 1804, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay, just don't want to confuse anybody. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 1804. Uh, and so he lived in the 19th century, which is what I was thinking of, and he was born of a father, James Mill, who was a philosophical radical in his own definition, mm-hmm. and he was an economist, a philosopher, and a writer, and James Mill was a radical for freedom of all kinds, very much in the Lockean mode. And James Mill, with, along with Jeremy Bentham, who was his very close friend, decided to create John Stuart Mill as a kind of experiment <laughs> in utilitarian education. So, by the age of three, he began being instructed in Greek and Latin. By the age of five, I think he was getting French. Mm -hmm. At age nine, he began helping with the production of uh, Ricardo's economic theories and editing the book, which later got published as, I believe, Principles of Economics. He then Later, wrote his own Principles of Economics book. By age, I think nineteen, he had a mental breakdown. Yeah, <laughs> not unpredictably. <laughs> um, and I think, but but I think that development really explains a lot about his philosophical development. As far as his contribution to the idea of liberty or contribution, uh, in a negative sense, I argue, um, he defined certain non-coercive actions which he regarded as also violations of liberty, what he called the moral coercion of public opinion. And it's kind of smuggled in, it's buried in parentheticals in, but in the core paragraphs of the book. So it's clearly intended to appeal to the Lockean liberal, but to have this kind of poison pill built in. And what he argued, he he, he, uh, borrowed the concept from Tocqueville of the tyranny of the majority, Mm -hmm. which former liberals, including Tocqueville, had regarded as uh, the, uh, the potential of the majority to hijack Democratic or representative government and to then tyrannize the minority But Mill said that there was an equivalent and even more pernicious form of Tyranny of the majority which he called the moral coercion of public opinion, right? and he his real point in that book he, along with his uh, wife, Harriet Taylor, who was almost a co-author of his theory on liberty. Their point was to introduce this concept of moral coercion as being tantamount to and equal, equally political to hmm. real coercion.
0: Well, I think that that's, we're already getting a sense for how this connects into what's happening today, where any form of disapproval or uh, hate, quote-unquote hate, et cetera, is regarded as equivalent to
1: coercion, equivalent to force or violence, where speech can be violence. That's right. That's exactly right. Uh, and, and Mill's whole point was that, uh, as he put it, opinion is as efficacious as law. Mm. So he said that uh, you might as well be imprisoned as excluded from the means of earning your bread. So for example, um, let's say you're a gay person in, let's say, not today's world where it's increasingly accepted, but let's go back to the let's say 1990s. Uh, very seldom were there persecutions or prosecutions of gay people, but you could still lose your job if your employer found out you were gay, you could still be denied housing and so on, There, there you weren't granted, you know, equal rights protection and so on. And so Mill would say that that person is just as subject to tyranny of the majority as the person who's put in prison for their unconventional behavior or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that I think is the key move in liberalism. Now what are the consequences
0: how does that unfold because you know but at mill's time liberalism would still be much more recognizable as a pro freedom movement at you know at mill's time and shortly afterwards but then over time <laughs> it, it those premises sort of work themselves out. So, what's the process by which that happens? That's right. That's
1: right. And and I think uh, what what this does is it really turns liberalism on its head. First of all, it eliminates an absolutely crucial distinction between ethics and politics. Mm-hmm. You know, in the past, you know the the famous line, which I, I, I'm told is apocryphal from Moliere, I I disagree vehemently with your opinion, but I would fight to the death for your right to express it. Well, that depends on a notion that there's a bright, shining line between what I disapprove of ethically and what the state should be involved in, or what the government should be involved in. This completely dissolves that line. So there's no longer, after Mill, if you accept his poison pill into the liberal ideal, there is no longer an idea that there's a distinction. So now, what that means is an increasing expansion of the role of the government. And first of all, we're, we're immediately going to have to see capitalism as an engine of Repression rather than as an expression of freedom, because capitalism means the economic system of freedom based on property rights. Well, if I'm a landowner and you want to rent an apartment from me or a house from me, and I have the right to my own property, then I get to be discriminatory under capitalism. If I have biases, bigotry, if I have bad ideas, and and let me say, I am totally pro-gay, and I myself would be very happy to rent to a gay person, but let's say I were not, I have that right under capitalism. Well, now that gets defined as a violation of your liberty, not you personally, but of the gay person's liberty.
0: Right. Now as I understand this too, Mill also is sort of responsible for drawing this line between property rights and human quote unquote human rights. You know, this is a standard of twentieth century liberalism. There's property rights and human rights. And we're we're not gonna respect the first, but we're gonna respect the second.
1: Absolutely. And that that's another key sort of idea that he injected into the liberal notion. And I think that the origin of that comes from exactly what I've been talking about, because property then becomes the source, not of protecting your freedom, but of violating it. Property becomes the means by which I, as a landowner or as a business owner can then discriminate against you, which violates your freedom. And therefore my exercise of my property rights, must be subjected to the uh, the the oversight of government to make sure that I'm not exercising it in a way that violates your quote social freedom. Mm-hmm. so that 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 idea comes straight out of this notion. And Mill did Mill himself never really went down this road very far in terms of his, explicit prescriptions for government he gave some ideas for example he wanted uh, establishment of uh, an intellectual elite class explicitly modeled it on the Church of England which he thought was uh, he didn't like the church itself he was an atheist but uh, or to the extent he was confident about anything yeah but he, he was um, he was deeply uncertain about all of life but um, He wanted to have a kind of establishment that would pay for intellectuals on the grounds that the open free market would not properly fund their activities Um, Later of course that became the in the US context the NEH and, and all the various alphabet endowments of uh, uh, financing arts and education and so on. And that's, of course, a whole huge topic worth discussing another yeah. time uh, with, with all kinds of problems inherent in it.
0: Well, I think it's fascinating, though, that he actually deliberately modeled it on the church. I mean, this is something we right. say a lot these days, which is it's become almost like a new priestly class. And it's interesting that from the beginning, that was the plan.
1: Absolutely, at least in in Mill's, mind uh, is very very explicitly laid out and and of course he's very clear that he doesn't want the church but he wants an equivalent sort of of approach Um, he also i think his ideas led directly to uh, all of the anti discrimination laws Mm -hmm. the eeoc and the various alphabet agencies that now oversee all uh, hiring and firing decisions and, and um, uh, Title IX and other uh, problematic interventions into the education field, all come straight out of this idea. Well, and I think
0: even so, beyond that, you know, one of the examples I had in mind as the, the sort of collapse of liberalism, you know, because the, the traditional 20th century liberalism was you're gonna be free to say whatever you want, but we're gonna have controls on economics. But the example that that stuck in my mind, this is from about a year, maybe a year and a half ago, there are a bunch of leftist protesters shouting down a speaker at, I think it's the College of William & Mary in Virginia. And the speaker was, who who do you think it was? Some radical right winger, you know, a a white nationalist? No, it was somebody from the ACLU of Virginia. So, you know, the idea of leftist protesters shouting down someone from the ACLU kind of sums up where we're at. Where this idea that your speech is coercion of me has become so thoroughly accepted that the ACLU arguing for people's right to speech becomes, you know, tantamount to being a white nationalist.
1: Absolutely, and and uh, the ACLU itself is still reeling mm-hmm. from this whole issue, because you know, I mean, in some ways I like the ACLU and some of the things they've done, but. Uh, Sorry, guys, you brought it on yourselves in, in a lot of ways. Right. Uh, because they accepted that definition of liberty that they got from John Stuart Mill. And now it's coming back to get them. And, and things like, um, you know, card-carrying leftist professors being uh, fired or put on academic suspension, administrative suspension for the crime of suggesting that Halloween costumes are not offensive. It's just it's absolutely run amok now. And um, I have to say, as an instructor at a Chinese university for many years, I felt far less repression than my colleagues in the United States reported regularly. And I could relatively say anything I wanted to, as long as I didn't directly critique the Communist Party. That, by the way, has changed, which we'll talk about another yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> uh, but the U.S. now has outmowed China. <laughs> uh, and that that
0: is, and you know, one of the things I've also noticed is that's gone over now into the. Um, into social media and into some of the things that Google and that that Twitter and, and Facebook and things like that, some of the things that they're doing in terms of getting rid of some people, you know, you can get your account suspended for saying something that they deem offensive. Uh, right, and, right, right, right. And, you know, that that also has some parallels. Again, we're going to do another session on on China and we'll talk about the social credit score. But I think Absolutely, it's in a way yes. they're sort
1: of pioneering that. We're getting the social credit score in the U.S. now, yes. Um, And and I have, uh, you know, of course, Google can do whatever it wants to do. Facebook can do whatever it wants to do. They're private companies. uh, (laughs) To Congress, they're private companies. (laughs) Again, I would go back to that old standard from John Locke, which is coercion. If someone comes on, if I ran Facebook, Heaven forbid. <laughs> you know, if somebody came on Facebook and advocated coercion, he'd be off. Right. If they advocate racism, then they're not getting invited to my Christmas party. Yeah. But that you know, that is a moral choice. It's not coercion. Right. So it, and it, I think that's again the bright line that liberalism should be upholding. Yeah, and in this sense, you. you uh, so, uh, sorry, to, no, uh, right. uh, I'm orating now. I'm on on my soapbox, but uh, <laughs> you started by talking about conservatism, and I think there's a sense in which, uh, you know, famously it was said by a congressman in the '60s, "We're all liberals now," mm-hmm. and there is a sense in which that's true because American conservatism is a funny thing, <laughs> because the Conservatism per se is conserving traditions, right? That's that's the definition. That's why it, it's called conservatism. Well, in the U.S., the traditions are liberal traditions, right? Lockean liberal traditions. So it's a little funny, and and conservatism per se in the U.S. is actually, in some ways, in its in its best sense. It's really the true liberalism in the U.S., which is why the words get all mucked up, and it's very hard to to even talk about coherently. Well, well
0: it, it should be liberalism. Conservatism should be liberalism. I think right now it's a little bit more. You know, th- things were America was much better when Donald Trump was a kid, so we should go back to that. Uh, <laughs> I, I in another I, conversation i was here. trying
1: to avoid getting into the, the the uh trump issue but yes unfortunately um it has been it has become a different kind of conservatism in my view well i had a and, discussion
0: uh, i had a discussion uh with trade on trade recently where i, I suggested that you could understand the, the current vogue on the right uh, against free trade you could understand that by listening to bruce springsteen songs because they're all about how, <laughs> how much better life was for a blue-collar guy back when he was a kid. And that, that's think, and, the sense of and, life there.
1: And I remember when that was what conservatives didn't like. Right, right. So uh, that, that shows how old I am. <laughs> now,
0: let's, let's go to the issue, though, of, of talking about trade and free markets and all that. So, John Stuart Mill, now, I, I'm a little unclear on this in terms of my understanding of the history, but, you know, he, he grew up— You know, uh, working in Ricardo's book, he grew up with his father being one of the, you know, great free market classical economists. So, you know, uh, my impression is that liberalism in his age was still the pro-free market, the pro-free trade party, and that he was more pro-free markets and pro-trade, even though he was starting to break down the issue of property rights as absolute. So how is right. it that that developed to the point where property rights became, you know, where 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 they became not, and, you know, I'm not just talking about anti discrimination laws because in and of themselves they're that's a fairly small thing, but how is it that they became the anti capitalists?
1: Mm. Yeah, and and I think that um, Mill is is quite interesting in this regard because uh, he wrote a book in 1848, The Principles of Political Economy, a right. giant honking volume. And, uh, it was at the time, and and it is a truly great book on economics. It's one of the best in my opinion. Um, then he reissued it in the 1850s after he had, um, had some change of opinion and he added some, what are now known as the chapters on socialism and he, now, in the original book, it was a resounding economic defense of capitalism. However, it was explicitly from the beginning and from very early in the volume a pragmatic defense of capitalism. Um, so he re- regarded capitalism as the best system purely on economic grounds. So he really. In some ways, I don't think he originated that division between the moral case for capitalism and the purely economic case for capitalism. Then, uh, so so first of all, number one, point one is he, he emphatically said that capitalism is not a moral system, that capitalism is not based on the case for freedom, it's based on purely pragmatic economic terms. So then when a Keynes comes along and gives a convenient rationalization for the moral theory that the left wanted in the first place, then it was very easy to sweep John Stuart Mill's economics out of the water.
0: Right, it's no longer the pragmatic utilitarian thing to do. We have Keynesian economics, which is gonna be really pragmatic and really utilitarian. Uh, Even though it's uh, as easy to poke a hole
1: in as a, as a balloon, but
0: now, yes. And I understand that the things he said very strongly about economics being just a matter of pragmatism, he said something different about intellectual freedom, that that was, you know, basically violates the conscience. And is, you know, he, was, he used moral language when talking about that. And I think that is really what establishes a lot of the, what you see in classical early 20th century liberalism
1: absolutely and and uh, again, it comes back to that distinction between uh, force and persuasion in in, in my terms mm-hmm. uh, because you know he wants to say that capitalism uh, is the, really a means of oppression if it's used improperly or it's it, it's potentially a means for oppression. of course that's where the anti-capitalist left took off from. Now he himself later in the 1850s added those chapters on socialism. He never really went whole hog into socialism. He kind of dipped his toe into the water and he made a a, a, a truly execrable argument that uh, we should experiment with socialism because he said the laws of production and the laws of distribution are themselves differentiated. (laughs) The laws of production he thought of as the equivalent of natural laws, like physics. The laws of distribution he thought of as social matters. And it is an absolutely abysmal argument, and it falls apart as soon as you start to push on it even a little bit. But it was his way of suggesting that maybe we should kind of tiptoe away from capitalism and give some, give a try to socialism. And this and very much explains. It to this day.
0: And this very much explains the modern left's approach that well, we can just, just take for granted all this wealth that we have and all this production, and assume that all mm-hmm. the trillions of dollars are here, and then you know we could, we could distribute, redistribute them any way we like, and that that money is still going to be produced, that wealth is still going to be manufactured. Right.
1: The production is here, so if we put the tariffs on, it'll move to the United States rather than just shutting down. Right, right. Oh. I said I wouldn't do it, and I did. Uh, so. <laughs> no,
0: you, 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 can, you can get on a soapbox about free trade anytime you like on this show. <laughs> All right. Scott linsicum might sue you for uh, foreign, uh, illegal foreign competition, but... Uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Chinese I've seen
0: pro-free your... ar- pro- pro- free trade arguments coming in here to compete
1: with American pro-free trade arguments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no worries there. But yeah, it, it's absolutely – and again, it all comes from John Stuart Mill. So this is why I, I personally call him public enemy number one for true liberalism because – without anybody even noticing it, and that's the, the really awful thing. Mm-hmm. He didn't come in like Marx with a straightforward argument for the evils of capitalism. He didn't come in like Skinner with an argument for social determinism. He came in with this subtle, what, what, what people regarded as a mere matter of definitions pure semantics, and who could care about such a small matter? And gosh, he's got a point that that there is this bad thing. And as I mentioned in in the gay case, for example, or in in racial discrimination, he's not wrong on the ethics of it, but, but on to the political, he destroyed the whole thing. And, and did, so yeah, in the
0: idea of breaking down the barrier between the ethical and the political, that anything that's right. wrong suddenly becomes something that can be re- regulated.
1: Right. Got a problem? Call your senator. <laughs> right. it, it's absolutely – it all traces straight back to John Stuart Mill. And, of course, there were lots of other figures involved, but he was really the one that that created that whole cascade of – what we regard as liberalism in the United States today,
0: and the thing is, I still have conservatives recommending to me John Stuart Mill's On Liberty
1: as one of the philosophical foundations of freedom. Absolutely, and if you want to get me on a screen on Facebook, quote On Liberty, positively, <laughs> and and I'll be on your on your thread in a heartbeat because. Because he's got some sweet sounding rhetoric, as I mentioned, but it absolutely is the destruction of liberty.
0: Now, this is all in a a paper that's coming out in a book. What's the name of the book again? Got to hear the plug for the book. It is
1: called, I have it here, The Philosophy of Capitalism Objectivism and Alternative Approaches. And my paper is called The Art of Liberalism Locke, Mill, and Rand. And I argue that. Ayn Rand uh, really completed what John Locke started, Uh, and it's a great book. I've read some of the other papers that are in it, Um, and even if mine weren't in it, I would still recommend it. (laughs) Well,
0: so that's a good way to end with, with what do you think are the, the big ideas that we need to sort of fix the problem created by Mill, fix the confusions created by Mill?
1: Yeah, I think the key the key notion is to reintroduce that distinction between force and persuasion, between the moral realm and the political realm. And absolutely we must insist that force and only force is the ultimate mind destroyer. That whatever forms of of inappropriate discrimination bad, immoral, unethical behavior, it cannot ever rise to the point of coercion where government should be involved to prevent it. So inappropriate, unethical, bad actions are in on one side. What government should be involved in is strictly the prevention of coercion. Yeah.
0: And I think it's deeply ironic You know, when we talk about the, the campus mobs and political correctness and that sort of thing. It, it's deeply ironic that his complaint about the coercive power of social disapproval has in a way indirectly led you know, by the securitist route has led to a point where social disapproval is used all the time to get people fired from jobs and to get people deplatformed from Patreon or Facebook or wherever.
1: Right. And I have to say that John Stuart Mill himself, uh, like Frankenstein— <laughs> uh, whose birthday was 200 years ago now. Uh, yeah. I think John Stuart Mill himself would be horrified by the, the current state of U S academic and other intellectual intellection in general, I would say, uh, but he is entirely responsible for it. Yeah, he, he created the monster. Well, thanks
0: thanks for coming on to talk about this. My guest is Bob Garmong, uh, author of this forthcoming paper on John Stuart Mill and his concept of liberty. Uh,
1: Thanks for coming on. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, get on my soapbox about my personal public enemy number one.
0: (laughs) That's what this show is all about, letting people get on their soapboxes. I'm Rob Drosinski. This is Salon of the Refused. You can find more ideas and analysis at The Traczynski Letter, Uh Please follow our uh, uh, video channel on YouTube, uh, follow our podcasts, and uh, you can also support us at Patreon, patreon.com slash Salon of the Refused. Thank you for listening.